Hey, it's Mark. As the audience for this podcast well knows, rare is the drug launch that proceeds in perfect linear fashion. A product could have a compelling efficacy and safety profile, differentiation, payer coverage, and a big DTC marketing push behind it. And yet, despite having those key ingredients in place, breakout success may be elusive. On the flip side, we've seen products smash through sales expectations despite launching into competitive spaces with rivals who have broader labels and deeper promotional spend. Everyone expects the launch curve to bend a certain way, but the reality is often different. Enter Vitama from Dermavant Sciences. The firm received Food and Drug Administration approval for the topical drug for use in treating adults with plaque psoriasis in May 2022. The first FDA-approved non-steroidal cream for the skin disease, Vitama garnered a blockbuster forecast from analysts. But the drug hasn't caught on quite as fast as some had expected, and in fact has fallen far short of that during its first full year on the market. There are various technical theories for that, but as Todd Zavotnik argues, Rome was not built in a day. The Dermavant CEO, a 12-year veteran of the aesthetic and pharma industries, whose former roles include President, General Manager of Galderma North America, has leveraged his deep experience in the derm category to lend perspective on his own drug's launch curve. And he's urging everyone to relax. Zavodnik somewhat famously compared Vitama to Botox, a drug which had a sluggish start back in the 90s and now consistently puts up mega blockbuster sales numbers across its medical and therapeutic uses. And there's wisdom to his words. Vitama is eyeing a second indication that can help the treatment gain entry to a population that's three times the size of psoriasis as soon as the fourth quarter of this year. This week on the show, my colleague Jack interviews the Dermavant CEO for his views on balancing success with expectations and why working in the derm field is not for the thin-skinned. And Lesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark. Today, I'll provide an update on another bill introduced in Congress that targets pharmacy benefit managers and how the PBM industry is responding. And Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week, we have an update from Elon Musk about Neuralink's first human patient, Brian Wilson's conservatorship amid a dementia diagnosis, and AIDS denialism makes an appearance on Joe Rogan's podcast. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Todd, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. For those in our audience who may not be familiar with Dermavant, can you give us kind of a high-level overview and then we can get more specific questions from there? Yeah, sure. Uh, Dermavant is is a clinical and commercial stage uh, biopharmaceutical company in the field of dermatology. Today, we're focused mainly on immunodermatology. Uh, I'll talk a little bit later about Vitama, which is commercially approved uh, for the treatment of psoriasis for those 18 and older. And we're currently studying uh, atopic dermatitis or eczema. Uh, and we're, you know, we've recently submitted our file waiting to hear back from the FDA uh, on the acceptance and, and hopefully move forward to an approval sometimes in 2024 in the back half. So uh, currently right now, we're, we're a member of the Royvant family. Royvant is our parent investor based in New York. They are a public company and they've been one of our major you know, funders and investors for the time I've been here, here as sixth year as CEO. 
I appreciate you giving us kind of that high level overview. Obviously, I want to get into the stuff with the VTAMA, but you bring up obviously the conditions that you're focusing on, the disease states as it relates to psoriasis, atopic derma, uh, dermatitis. We've covered those in various, you know, brand awareness campaigns and, you know, you and your competitors obviously focusing in this area. What is the most critical thing to understand about these types of dermatological conditions? Because I feel like we always see, you know, commercials out there for psoriatic arthritis. There's been more conversation about AD in recent years. But, you know, when you look at this space, where do you see the opportunity or how has it changed since you've been CEO? No, it's a great question. And and for me, I, I guess a little bit of background. This is my 12th year in dermatology um, I've lived and worked ar- around the world. And when you look at really dermatology, people look at it in two different areas. There's sort of a medical dermatology space and there's an aesthetic dermatology space. And when we talk about the medical dermatology space, you know, psoriasis and atopic dermatitis or the immunoderm area makes up about 60 to 70% of, of the value of that space. So that, that's number one. I think number two they're really, when you look at pure innovation in immunodermatology, it's why you're seeing so many, you know, you said ads on TV, you see a lot in the oral and the injectable space, you know, really on the severe side of treatment or you're really bad cases that have been untreated. And you've really seen nothing until of late, until these last years, topically, there's been minimal innovation. So for me, five and a half years ago, um, when I took a look at Dermavant and and spoke to Roy Van about coming aboard to build the company from ground zero, um, it excited me to look at a non-steroidal option uh, with Tepinarov and Vitama. And and why I say that is because pretty much in immunodermatology, 90% of the topical treatments are steroids. And and dermatology, it's sort of been a little bit antiquated. Um, I use the analogy, it's been stuck in the cassette world and, and really these non-steroidals, myself and our competitors, we're moving it to the digital world of music uh, today in 2023 and beyond. It's so interesting to hear you talk about kind of that difference between the aesthetic and the immuno area. And I think we can dig a little bit more into the aesthetic one later because I want to get your thoughts and obviously this kind of renewed interest, I think you could say, in terms of investment in the skincare uh, industry. But you brought up Vitama earlier. You had at this point, it will be a couple months uh, by the time this airs, but you had a phase three trial where you released some really promising data. Can you walk us through the top level findings out of that study and why you're bullish on its prospects? Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind, I'm just going to back up one minute and just share with you. So back in May of 22, I think it's important just to reflect back. Like it was a massive milestone for Dermavant because, again, we're not just launching a product in Vitama for psoriasis. We built an entire company from zero. So it's different when you launch a product within an existing company versus we stood up an entire organization and these trials were executed during one of the most catastrophic catastrophic events in our lifetime, which was the pandemic. And our trials were done in the U.S. and Canada for psoriasis. So now we're sitting on, you know, close to coming up, you know, in May of 24 on two years since launch of psoriasis. Um, as of today, we have you know, 275,000 prescriptions. We have 13,000 unique writers or physicians writing VTAMA, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, which is remarkable. At the same time, now that we're in the market commercially promoting for psoriasis, our clinical part of our organization was executing our atopic dermatitis or eczema study that you asked about. And, and that's remarkable And that that goes down to the age of two. 
So we looked at two to five, we had a subsection of six to 11, 12 to 17, and then only 20% of our population was really above 18 years of age, um, knowing that eczema atopic derm originates within the younger generations. And we did a study of well over 800 patients, two pivotals, which is what the FDA requires um, of an eight week trial. And you're really looking for a two point reduction um, from where patients came in at, at moderate to severe. So moderate severe is scored as a three or four, and we're looking for a zero or one uh, two point reduction from baseline of where they started. Um, our results uh, really were, were really remarkable in my mind in that they were repeated. You know, you see our results in the 40% ranges, you see our results versus vehicle, um, patients extremely happy. We reported out on our itch data, uh, which again showed great reduction in itch and really immediate. So in the journals that patients kept, we saw itch relief as early as day one in some patients within our journals of studies. And we saw adverse events to be consistent with Tepeneroff and what we saw in our psoriatic trials where, you know, we see folliculitis, we see some headache, we see very low levels of contact derm, which um, really haven't impeded the success so far of Tepeneroff or Vitama. So for us, we're, we're excited in that, you know, what's important here is we're giving an offering that is a non-steroidal medication. We're going down to the age of two, um, which is important for parents that truly are making decisions for their children where, you know, they don't want to put steroids on their kid's skin if they don't have to. They want a non-steroidal option, whether it's the, the trunk or the body, or it's the sensitive areas like, you know, the groin or under the arms or on the face. So for us, it's exciting. And, and I should say this is it's not just Dermavan. There are other companies out there um, in the competitors uh, world, in the non-steroidal world, who are doing a very good job. So it's really just Dermavan with these other organizations that are launching products. It's our job to move really in immunodermatology, this steroidal foundation where 90% of topicals sit over to this non-steroidal world VTAM is our product, but these other companies are doing a great job. And it's, it's really if the three of us and more to come move steroids to the appropriate use and, and really drive non-steroidal medications, it's going to move us into the digital music world that dermatology belongs really belongs to be at right now in 2024. I appreciate you calling it the digital music world. And it's interesting because I had a conversation with the president of the National Psoriasis Foundation for one of, an event that was hosted by one of your competitors back in the fall. And she was talking about that desire among a lot of the patient population and her herself as a patient advocate of moving away from the steroidal option, if they're able to, to something that's just effective and non-steroidal. What are next steps here? You've released the data. You know, What does that look like in terms of getting the approvals that you're looking for from the FDA? Are you bullish on that? What, you know, what are the next steps there? Yeah, no, it's fair. It's a great question. So, you know, obviously this is airing and, and we've submitted. So we're, we're waiting to hear back on the acceptance of the file. Um, this is an SNDA, you know, as I said, psoriasis was approved. So this is, um, you know, typically a 10 month review period. So we would expect in the back part of this year, um, to hear from the FDA. I can't, you know, predict what the agency does. I think we've worked very closely with them through our process, much like we've done um, with psoriasis. I think what's promising is what I started with is um, VTAMA is transforming lives. I mean, the amount of patient stories we've gotten back in psoriasis, 
Um, the fact that we have over 275,000 units and 13,000 unique writers for Vitama in, in coming up on two years shows the agency that, that this product is doing what it's intended to do. And it's making a positive impact in, in dermatology, not just offering another solution, but it's transforming the space, moving steroids over to non-steroids with the other, the other competitors. So, you know, I think for us, it's, it's really, we are in uh, two phases internally at Dermavant. I think clinically it's working with the agency to ensure that we're answering their questions as we move forward to a hopeful approval in the back half of the year. And secondarily, it's, it's the commercial organization not only continuing to drive psoriasis in the marketplace, but it's sort of this launch, launch acceleration planning process where I'm sure you, you know is when you launch a product, it starts 24 months in advance. So our commercial and our medical organizations have been working hand in glove to really be ready you know, one to two years in advance. So when we get the approval, I, I'm a believer that day one approval is launch. When you get approval from the FDA, that doesn't mean you wait 30 days or 60 days. That means product is ready. That means materials are ready. And that means the physicians, PAs, nurse practitioners are ready. And, and that, that we show at Dermavant that if we expect to transform the space, we've got to be ready day one, second one. And you talk about the being ready for that commercialization push and being able to, you know, transform the industry like you talk about. I saw in research for this interview headlines where you had talked about kind of the modest uptake that there had been of Vitama. I think it was back in November and you had compared it to kind of the gradual rise we saw with Botox and basically how, yeah, it had a slower rise. But now, you know, Botox is something that people even use just offhandedly. It has that sort of brand value. As we sit here in you know mid-January with this conversation going up in mid-February. What do you say to those who may have criticisms of the fact that like, hey, we were expecting this sort of uptake and we're just not there yet? Yeah, no, it's it's look, I, I tried to give my respectful point of view. I think I think the beauty, the beauty in business or the beauty in science is everybody's entitled to their opinion. Right. Everybody has their model and, and their Excel and their spreadsheet. And I think everybody expects a line to bend a certain way. And I, I came here five and a half years ago. I have a background in pharmacology and, and a master's in business. And for me, I studied the molecule. I studied the space. And I clearly see that this molecule is going to transform dermatology. Now, in the United States, in the regulatory body and in the what I would believe is the conservative nature of the dermatology field, there's a component of time and acceptance and patient feedback with managed care that has to play out. And I think it is a little bit, takes a little bit more time in dermatology than I've seen maybe in spaces like gastroenterology or neurology with new mechanisms. So that was what I was trying to say is look, psoriasis at 18 and above is, is an older space and VTAMA has done better than any other launch topically, oral or injectable wise on new patient starts. And that's proven through data. I think what what is exciting is atopic dermatitis is three times the size of psoriasis. So you're not just talking to dermatologists or pediatric dermatologists or allergists, you're talking to pediatricians and family practice doctors, and, and you're really unleashing a, a molecule that down to two years of age that won't just transform in dermatology, but medicine itself. So I gave the analogy of, of Botox simply because I, I think Rome was not built in a day. And I think it's really easy in 18 months to criticize 
But it's also important to recognize what's been done. And when you look at the curves that VTAM has produced and you look at the success with patients and you hear the stories, I've, I've got one this morning from somebody that said that they started in December and this is the first product that they've seen this faster results in, in their timeline of psoriatic treatment through the years. It, it is that component. I think we're balancing obviously success with expectations of time. And, and I think atopic dermatitis is exciting because it gives us the ability to, to show explosive growth on top of the growth we've done with psoriasis. And, you know, if it was easy, I always say everybody would be doing it. Um, unfortunately, it's not. And I think the data shows that not just Dermavamp, but the other companies in this space, we are going to be successful moving steroids to non-steroids. These are good medicines and it's the right thing for the patient. I don't think we're going to eliminate steroids, but I think we're going to have appropriate use of steroids with the non-steroidal VTAMA and other options. And it's going to help the patients and it's going to be good for dermatology, but I think it's just derms are a little bit more conservative and it just takes a little bit longer, but we're there. We're in year two and I expect AD and, and these other disease states to explode. I appreciate you being able to offer your thoughts on these disease states and obviously what your company is in the process of doing. I want to broaden out a little bit because you talked about the state of dermatology in that sort of way. And I, I want to get your thoughts because it is a little bit adjacent, but it's something that we've obviously seen is this rise in consumerism in healthcare and kind of a broader renewed interest in skincare specifically. And, you know, those aren't your typical dermatology focused companies. These are people that are saying like, hey, we have this cream or we have this lotion or something that can help. What does that mean for you as when you're really trying to wedge yourself in there, you and your competitors to say, hey, we're going to have non-steroidal options. We will have steroidal options. These are FDA approved, like going through that whole process. But then you're, you know, fighting against brands that maybe on social media, they're like, hey, we have this really, you know, for lack of a better term, silver bullet, you know, cream or lotion or whatever that can treat your symptoms. How do you balance against that? Because I feel like that's a playing field that is inherently unfair because they don't have to go through maybe nearly as many hoops regulatory wise that you do. Um, yeah. Well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll answer it a couple ways. I, I think first off, I think I'll start at the 30,000 foot level, which is more the macros. I think, I think when you look at, well, let's look at the United States because of our approval or Dermavant where we were operating with Vitama and psoriasis. I think number one, the macros are people are living longer, the age of the internet and digital innovation, and just the ability to reach more with a message of education, uh, both disease state or, or product related, um, whether that's an over-the-counter or that's a prescription related item. I think the level of education is high and that's a good thing. Now, you could always complain that some of that education isn't real or, or it's not substantiated with, you know, with a reputable source, but all in all, there's, there's, there's just an awareness. And I think that's healthy for the patient um, overall. I think if we're talking and it's important to delineate as we go down the funnel, if you're delineating and you're talking more medical, you're talking a real disease, it's part of a continuum. I think an educated patient, uh, if you want to call them patient consumer, uh, is going to do some research. They're going to talk to possibly their peers or people they respect in their friend network. Um, and then they're going to look for a healthcare professional, either at the primary care level or the specialist level, depending upon their range of commercial or, or state provided insurance. And I think they're good things. I mean, to me, especially for Dermavant as a small single product standalone player who's playing in the large immunodermatology field with pure innovation like Vitama, 
I think it's great that we can reach a lot of people with the awareness of this non-steroidal option, where in the day, you only could really do it in the doctor's office. I, I think today you have the ability to educate um, and you have the ability for patients to, to know of all these choices. So I think it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I think on one side, you're reaching the masses. Um, I think secondly, there's probably some products that are snake oil-ish that are gonna sneak through the realm and not provide value. But ultimately, if people find their way to the physician, I think dermatologists are some of the best doctors in the world. It's one of the hardest residencies to match for in the United States. Um, you know, whether it's a derm, a PA, or a nurse practitioner, they're going to get the right treatment um, when they find their way. Uh, I think ultimately the biggest challenge is, you know, having enough practitioners in, skin, in the skin field to address all of the need we have in this country as people live longer. That's been the biggest challenge we've been faced with as we go into 2024. I can imagine so. And it sounds like you're, it, it, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you are skeptical of the idea that the misinformation that we have seen proliferate across the entire industry, but specifically in the dermatology space, is going to have that size, that outsized impact because there has been so much of a push on the educational front and really trying to broaden the access points for patients. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think with all the good, there's always going to be, you know, a, a yin and yang to the story. I, I think, when you, you brought up earlier the aesthetic side where I spent a lot of time when I was leading Galderma on the injectable and I was helping to lead cool sculpting on the international marketplace. Um, when you look at the aesthetic world, it's the same. I mean, you have a, a space that continues to grow. Yes, it's sensitive to macroeconomics on the, on the indicators of consumable or disposable income and spend by patients. But ultimately, people are living longer. There's more awareness of, of, of your skin and your skin health. And whether it's the medical side for real disease or it's the aesthetic side where it's just feeling good about yourself, there's a lot out there for consumers or patients to look for. And I think the majority of it's good. The key is getting to a point and getting to that practitioner and, and really taking everything you've absorbed and then getting substantiated with, you know, science-based medicine, um, you know, which is most important. Absolutely. It's always being able to have those reliable communicators of information, which I know our audience being medical marketers are always putting a priority on. Todd, it's been really great having you on the show here, being able to obviously see all the momentum that Dermavant has at its back and so much potential ahead of it. I wanted to throw the last question to you. You've been in charge of the company now through you know, you would refer to it earlier as one of the great catastrophes of our lifetime with COVID, with all these other sorts of volatility, uncertainty. We're obviously not in the same emergency state that we were four years ago, but there is still a lot out there that has caused, you know, investors, consumers to be apprehensive about where things go from here. As the leader of a company that is trying to, you know, make an impact in this space and obviously healthcare being disrupted the way it was four years ago. What is your read on basically where things go from here in terms of maybe the macroeconomic challenges that you and the company are going to have to navigate? I think it's it's a great question. I think, look, things are, in my mind, in a lot of states coming back to normal, and I'm speaking specific. Dermatology was unique in itself in that, you know, telemedicine played a big role to keep the volume of patients being touched through COVID where offices were closed or there were limitations in the hospital and clinic setting. So I think Derm, Derm got a little bit of a break because um, of the ability to use photos or uh, AI or other technologies that were able to support through the pandemic. Um, you know, I think right now it's it really comes down to what I think we started with is 
in order to be successful in 2024 and beyond post-COVID, you need pure innovation. And what I mean by that is what we provide with Tepinarov and Vitama, which is a novel mechanism of action, something that was built for dermatology. And, and I think it provides a unique offering as a non-steroidal, whether 18 and above in psoriasis or eventually with FDA approval pending two years and above in atopic dermatitis and eczema. I think that's what investors and health care practitioners are looking for. They want to know that companies are bringing something innovative, not something that's a combination of something older or something repurposed or an oral or an injectable that's been repurposed and put in a, put in a cream and used um, and called innovative. I think they want to see something new and they want to see that comes with new mechanisms and new approaches to disease states that really in a lot of ways have not been fully answered yet, especially in immunodermatology. So that's really the key to me is that if you're looking at companies, the question is, what are the molecules? What is the level of innovation, true innovation that this molecule provides? And then obviously you have to look at the managed care setting in this country and you have to look at the intellectual property of that molecule that goes with it. And when you take the science with the access piece along with the intellectual property, that's your three-legged stool to see, is that really going to be a game changer for the longevity of what we believe is a great investment? And I believe Dermavant fits all of that. And that's why I said yes, five and a half years ago, for sure. It's interesting to hear you bring up that point in terms of being able to have real innovation. And I think that's still a downstream effect that we've seen from the COVID vaccines come out as people saying like, hey, if we can tackle these major challenges, what else can we do across a variety of disease states, dermatology being no different? So it's something we'll certainly keep an eye out uh, for. I, I wish you and your company the best of luck going forward. Certainly we'll be keeping an eye on what happens by the time May rolls around, but really appreciate the time here, Todd. No, I've, I've truly enjoyed it. Thanks for all the great questions and I uh, look forward to uh, meeting you again. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Legislation designed to rein in certain practices of pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs in driving up drug costs is slowly moving forward in Congress. Earlier in February, the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability voted to advance yet another PBM reform bill called the Delinking Revenue from Unfair Gouging or Drug Act. The bipartisan bill was introduced by Republican Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks and would take aim at so-called spread pricing, a practice in which PBMs charge insurers more than what they pay pharmacies. It would also ban PBMs from linking rebates to the list prices of drugs and instead require them to provide a flat service fee, a policy known as delinking. The move reflects the continued bipartisan support for legislation that targets PBMs, even as Congress continues to place the heat on the pharma industry. The Senate Help Committee recently held a hearing during which Senator Bernie Sanders grilled the CEOs of J&J, &J, Merck, and Bristol-Myers Squibb over high drug costs. PBM lobbying groups such as the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association expressed opposition to the Drug Act and shifted the blame to pharma companies. The PCMA noted that, quote, make no mistake, drug companies' constant blaming of PBMs is designed to avoid accountability and further boost profits and pricing power. 
but Transparency Rx, a nonprofit coalition of PBMs that advocates for transparency in the industry, expressed support for the new bill. Joe Shields, Managing Director of Transparency Rx, said in a statement that the Drug Act is, quote, notable as the bill takes concrete steps to ameliorate the burden of high list prices that big PBMs have shifted onto patients and plans. In a delinked or transparent approach, fees are disclosed, reliable, and knowable. Shields added that the organization continues to support legislative proposals that increase transparency and oversight of PBM practices. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome back Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. So, a few weeks after Neuralink implanted the first brain computer chip into a human patient, Elon Musk said the patient is fully recovered and can control a computer mouse through thinking. Musk said, quote, progress is good and the patient seems to have made a full recovery with no ill effects that we are aware of. Patient is able to move a mouse around the screen by just thinking, he said in a Spaces event on X, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. He added that the company is trying to get as many mouse button clicks as possible from the patient before proceeding. Obviously, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago where things just suddenly kind of popped up like, oh, a patient has the brain implant and now we have the brain implant apparently functioning and the patient healthy, which is all I guess we can hope for now. Uh, Lesh, I want to throw it over to you. There's not a ton of details to go on, but they seem at this point in time, at least a little promising. Yeah, definitely interesting to hear an update um, since, you know, we we heard recently, I think it was a few weeks ago that. Elon Musk officially announced that it had been implanted in the human for the first time. Um, this obviously comes after there were various safety concerns that um, were risen sort of in the last year or two around Neuralink. Um, Reuters reported back in 2023 that the FDA had actually originally rejected Neuralink's application to start human trials because of a variety of safety concerns, um, including the device's lithium battery Um apparently the potential for the implant's wires to migrate to other areas of the brain and um, sort of concerns over whether the device can be removed from the brain without damaging actual brain tissue. Um, I believe there were also some concerns around some of the monkey um, monkeys involved in some of the animal trials and, and safety around those as well. Um, so obviously we kind of have a lot of these safety concerns that are floating around in the background. We don't really know too many details, as you mentioned, um, about this this ongoing human trial, but hopefully it's it's looking up and hopefully we'll see some benefits. I'm curious, um, Mark, what your take is on this. Yeah, thanks, Lesha. And, and in addition to um, you know all those uh, safety concerns, uh, there was a recent Reuters report uh, that uh, they got uh, dinged or fined uh, for violating uh, U.S. Department of Transportation rules uh, regarding the movement of hazardous materials. So. They continue to have these uh, troubling issues, but um, you know, perhaps as as you both alluded uh, to, one of the most uh, troubling of all issues here is that most of the information uh, on uh, this uh, you know first human implantation uh, is coming through Elon Musk's tweets on X, mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know. As I was reading, uh, there was a Good Nature report on this, and they interviewed some neurotechnology researchers. And while they were holding out cautious uh, optimism for this first human trial, 
they, you know, which, which is going to try to determine whether this implant is safe, whether it's effective at measuring brain signals. Uh, they expressed a lot of frustration as well about that lack of detailed information. Apparently, the most of the information that's public uh, has been made available through a study brochure that invites people to participate. The trial is not registered on clinicaltrials.gov, which is, of course, the big online repository curated by the NIH. And so uh, that's got researchers, um, you know, very uh, uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, then you look across at rivals uh, like Synchron, uh, which is, um, you know, Neuralink's competitor. They reportedly uh, are ramping up production of their device, which is more like a stent-like device, which is inserted through the blood vessel. It's non-invasive. And it's been shown to help people uh, with limited physical mobility to operate technology like smart home devices and cursors with their minds. And Musk has even, um, you know, asked reportedly, according to a Bloomberg report, he's asked a lot of questions about Synchronos. I think he can, views them as their main competitor. Um, and he has acknowledged that, you know, they're way ahead. They recently acquired a minority stake in a, in a German manufacturer uh, that's going to, I guess, help them scale up the manufacturing. Uh, they've implanted six patients in the U.S. Another four in Australia, and and so they've got a, lot, a ways to go before they are able to, uh, you know, convince regulators to give approval. Uh, but uh, they're, they're way ahead. One of the things that might it might come down to is that Synchron's device, because it's not inserted directly in brain tissue, apparently the quality of the brain signal is not as strong, whereas the Neuralink device is implanted directly into the brain tissue. So Musk is is promising that his is going to have a better signal. So it's interesting, you know, it's when you talk about the, you know, competitive nuances uh, of that space. Uh, but we hope that, uh, you know, Neuralink can stay, stay clear of all the, uh, you know, the safety issues and that it will not get any, any further fines or be, be found in violation of anything else. And we can see whether, whether, whether and to what extent um, its implant actually works. Yeah, we're just so far into, you know, uncharted territory that all you can do is keep your fingers crossed for the sake of the patient, for the sake of this technology. But as Lesha documented and, and you talked about too, Mark, is like there is this track record that is impossible to ignore given what has occurred and the person that's at the helm of this project. So, like I said, fingers crossed and, and we'll see as it goes. Obviously, we'll keep everyone posted here as we get more information. I want to go to our second story, which is about the unfortunate development in Brian Wilson's life following the passing of his wife, Melinda. Late last month, the Beach Boys legend's family has filed for a conservatorship, citing his suffering from a, quote, major neurocognitive disorder such as dementia. The family added in a press statement to People magazine that longtime Wilson family representatives Leanne Hard and Gene Seavers will serve as Brian's co-conservators. Wilson previously had an advanced health care directive naming Melinda as the agent for his health care. And though she passed away, the family said he is no longer able to provide for his own personal needs and no one was named as a successor to her in the plan, thus the need for filing for the conservatorship. Those familiar with Wilson's biography will recall that mental illness has been a key factor in his rock and roll legacy. Since the mid-1960s, he has dealt with auditory hallucinations and was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and mild bipolar disorder. The pressure surrounding the follow-up to the band's iconic Pet Sounds album, severe substance abuse, and the mismanagement of care under controversial psychologist Eugene Landy derailed Wilson's life for about 20 years. All of that is documented in the 2014 film Love and Mercy, which I would encourage anyone in our audience who hasn't seen it to go check it out. Some wonderful acting from John Cusack and Paul Dano. 
But obviously very sad. You know, my sister went and saw him a couple of years ago when he came to perform in Albany. And she said, obviously, he's a genius. That's always been the trademark with Brian Wilson. Phenomenal musician, but never got up to stand, barely addressed the audience. And that was only a few years ago. And you understand how, you know, some of these symptoms can you know, metastasize and, and worsen as time goes on, especially when it's neurocognitive. So it's it's unfortunate given a lifetime that, you know, for almost 50, 60 years, he's been dealing with these sort of challenges and it's only grown into this. Lesh, I want to bring you in because obviously this is no secret that Brian Wilson has dealt with mental issues throughout his entire adult life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, quite amazing actually that, you know, a, a musical talent can create such a lot of creative output despite struggling with mental health issues throughout his entire life. So just want to throw that out there. But um, one of the interesting aspects of this mental health story, actually, I think is um, Eugene Landy, as you mentioned, Jack, who was um, Wilson's therapist. Um, He was largely credited for helping Wilson emerge from depression and substance abuse in the 1980s and sort of get back on the scene. But Landy also became known for sort of inserting himself into Wilson's creative and financial work, um, even becoming a record producer and business partner with him at the time, which from the outside sort of looks like, you know, he was trying to take a piece of Wilson's fame. Um, So it's interesting that this therapist played such a huge role in Wilson's life, um, arguably both negative and positive ways. Um, And, you know, a therapist is supposed to be someone who's an outside observer of your of your life, not trying to get, you know, very involved to the level that Landy appeared to be. So I think that's a, a pretty interesting um, piece of this, you know, especially as the, the mental health provider shortage, you know, we're facing now with like the mental health crisis where everyone is looking for a therapist. Um, so it's kind of an interesting aspect of that story. And, and to have the resources that he did at the time and looking for somebody that, again, it was around the clock, you know, I'm going to micromanage every aspect of your life. He had all of the resources to find what you could say is, quote unquote, the best therapist in the world mm-hmm. and still ran into a lot of the issues that we find in terms of trusting your provider, yeah. access, all that sort of stuff. Mark, wanted to bring you into this conversation, too, because I think it touches on a lot of the things that we've all talked about. There's obviously the dementia aspect, too. You know, what sticks out to you from this story? Yeah, thanks, Jack. I, I was struck um, also um, by a couple things. You know, Lesha, you just kind of um, made me c- kind of compare in my own mind the difference between Wilson's trajectory, you know, if you want to call it that, in, in terms of dealing with his neurocognitive decline and that of Tony Bennett, you mm-hmm. know, who we lost last July, you know, the the, the pop and jazz American uh, icon. And, um, you know, because, you know, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, um, I believe in 2016, but he had um, a, a very slow uh, progression of his illness and he continued to record and tour and perform until his retirement, which, which uh, it says on Wikipedia, his final performance was in, in 2021 at Radio City Music Hall and he had all the you know, performances with Lady Gaga. And it was it was really amazing. I mean, the 60 Minutes interview with him, you know, we all kind of marveled at how he was able to recall, you know, the American standards, you know, the American songbook, uh, despite, you know, not knowing, you know, sometimes having trouble recalling his own family members. So it is striking how, you know, performers are able to keep up their creative output, even when they're dealing with a neurocognitive disorder like dementia, uh, and in, in Wilson's case, you know, in a pretty major way. You know, on, on a much more, you know, boring note, 
it does kind of underscore the need. I know Wilson was 81 and he had an advanced directive, but kind of the need for a living will. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not an attorney, but uh, it's, a, it's a legal document that tells doctors uh, how you want to be treated if you can't make your own decisions about emergency treatment. I know he had one, you know, and he, he named Melinda, but I, I suppose it's important, you know, to have, you know, to, to revisit that uh, throughout one's life. And just kind of the you know reminder that I'm I'm getting to the age where I need to get get one of those in order. So maybe that's on my mind. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it could be there. And I think too that like the the idea of a conservatorship has obviously taken on such a controversial meaning in the past couple of years. Obviously with everything that happened with Britney Spears and Amanda Bynes, and, right. and you can point out different examples. But this is an instance where it does make so much sense to have one in place because he obviously can't you know, do for himself. And that was what Melinda was there for and was there for a good 20, 30 years of his life. But obviously you need to be able to have somebody that's able to take care of you and look over you if you have the means and resources to do so. So obviously kind of an unfortunate development in a life that has been so troubled by different mental challenges, but it's good to know that there is at least a structure in place to give him that organization going forward. Absolutely. And for our last segment, I wanted to go back to, you know, kind of the I, I think one of the first times that we talked about Joe Rogan on the show was something last spring about, I can't even, there's so many medical misinformation controversies, but it's been a while since we've dipped into that well as it relates to him. So we're going to go back to it because a couple of days ago he had Brett Weinstein on the show and they are both in the hot seat amid allegations of promoting AIDS denialism on the podcast. Uh, in the interview, the former professor of evolutionary biology turned podcaster, batted around some ideas as to what causes HIV and AIDS. And one theory that the two of them landed on that made headlines was the suggestion linking the popular party drug poppers to AIDS with Weinstein saying that the evidence is, quote, surprisingly compelling. In the course of the conversation, Weinstein referenced statistics supporting the theory found in the book, The Real Anthony Fauci by independent presidential candidate and outspoken anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the interview was widely criticized for platforming AIDS denialism theories with a Vice article noting, quote, there is no scientific debate whatsoever about the cause of AIDS and the information Weinstein was repeating has been roundly discredited for decades. Adding his own take, oncologist David Gorski said the interview highlights the staying power of pseudoscience and anti-vaccine rhetoric across multiple disease states, saying, quote, once you go down the rabbit hole of pseudoscience, quackery and conspiracy theories in one area, such as COVID-19, it is nearly inevitable that you will embrace fractal wrongness in the form of multiple kinds of pseudoscience, such as anti-vax, AIDS denialism, etc. It's so frustrating to me to see something like that where there is such established science. And it does seem the article that uh, Vice wrote about it, Futurism, there were other publications, Forbes had written about this, that so much of this always comes down to this so, this freakishly weird obsession that people in the anti-vax community have with Anthony Fauci. And I, I, I'm going to be the first to one hands up. I'm not saying that, you know, he was, you know, this Lord and savior that everyone made it out to be at the start of the pandemic. But this idea that he is somehow an antichrist to the medical community as well, or that he was out there trying to hurt people, whether that was with COVID or even extending this back to the AIDS HIV argument is just so bizarre to me. That's That seems to be what it really comes down to because you can't look at any of the other evidence and say that poppers, that you know, plenty of my, and I'm sure there are people in the audience that know exactly what I'm talking about, plenty of my gay and bisexual uh, friends are all too familiar with that that somehow causes this epidemic, this thing that has ravaged the community. I don't know. It's, it's so insulting on such a 
on a base level, but then to hear people that are talking to an audience of millions each week and people are like, oh yeah, do your own research or look into it. The evidence is compelling. It's just, it's so insulting. Yeah, just one note about Brett Weinstein, um, you know, being a former professor of evo evolutionary biology doesn't make you a medical expert or a doctor. So just want to throw that out there. Yes. But he's also notorious for being part of this so-called intellectual dark web as a whole. Like, I mean, he's, as you mentioned, he was known as the ivermectin guy uh, during COVID claiming that the anti-parasitic drug was, quote, a near perfect COVID prophylactic, even though there's no medical evidence that supports that claim. But I also want to point out that the Joe Rogan experience was the most popular podcast of 2023 for the fourth year in a row. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though people in our industry and the medical world um, may view Joe Rogan, Rogan as this vector of misinformation, that these people are absolutely insane for making these claims, um, a huge portion of the American population actually sees things very differently. They, they view Joe Rogan and people like Brett Weinstein as being these sort of bearers of truth who challenge the mainstream, whether that's Anthony Fauci, the government, or the main quote-unquote mainstream media. Um, so there's a huge population in the U.S. who view things like this. And I think that's important for marketers to understand and to consider as they think about ways to tackle health misinformation, which obviously continues to be a huge issue. Yeah, it's just like, I don't know how you can and I we talk with marketers about it all the time where they come in with these great intentions. They want to go through established institutionalized channels. And it's like, that's going to be nothing when an episode of the Joe Rogan experience exactly. with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Brett Weinstein yeah. or Jordan Peterson, you name, you know, your, your cup of the week, like they're going to come on there, have information, then say, do your own research. That's going to undo any campaign or ad or anything that you mm -hmm. do there. I think that's so, so well spoken, so well stated that, you know, it is a really important consideration for marketers to keep in mind um, that uh, and, and what makes, you know, people who peddle conspiracy theories so dangerous is that it, it does come packaged, you know, in and, uh, you know, a, a package that appears to be factual and and, and rational um, and, you know, as, as Vice pointed out, kind of like a fractional, um, uh, you know, um, balkanization of the truth, if you will. Um, and it, it, it makes it, you know, it, it confuses the issue. And, and, and therein, you know, the, in that confusion is where, you know, the seeds of doubt lie. And it's kind of just like, you know, um, uh, blossoms from there, if you will. But, you know, there's an expression uh, that I was like, before, before the disease, God creates the cure. And it's, it's, it's no, no, no different in the pandemic of misinformation or pseudoscience or conspiracy theories. Um, anytime there's a big piece of misinformation, there's often a countervailing and much more reliable voice inserting that much needed credibility. In this case, it's ironic that we have someone named Brett Weinstein who is espousing these views because Michael Weinstein, no relation as far as I know, um, between the two, has been such a wonderful proponent and advocate, you know, for those with the disease. Of course, Michael Weinstein being the president of the uh, AIDS Healthcare Foundation, um, and whose goal is to, uh, you know, make sure people with the disease um, have, you know, the supportive care that they need and, you know, advocating um, in, in Washington on the policy front. Uh, but we don't need to tell this audience, you know, the difference between cause and association. And that's kind of where this argument boils down to. Uh, it just kind of seems I'm not a scientist, uh, but I can recognize pseudoscience mm -hmm. when I when I hear it. And that sounds to me a lot like pseudoscience. Um, you know, important distinction there. Um, and uh, absolutely, we just invite people to, uh, you know, 
follow that out to its logical conclusion. And then you'll obviously come to the the rational one, which is that, uh, you know, there's no doubt that HIV is, is the cause of AIDS. Absolutely. And it's one of those things that, again, you talk about it where it's like, I think we've gotten a little too polite in society with entertaining bad ideas and, you know, concepts that can have dangerous consequences if you go further down the logic tree, which not enough people are willing to embrace. So it's it's high time to be able to call those things out for what they are, which is pseudoscience quackery. Um, some other words we can't say on this podcast, but I think we can I think we can wrap it up there. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the MMNM Podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's show when we'll be joined by Lisa Leonard, pharma commercial voice actor, and Jim Kennelly, owner of Lotus Productions. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>